from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal, the show where practice meets personality. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. Listeners, will you look at that? We are already at episode three of season three. Look how quickly time jumps again. Now, unfortunately, I don't have another president of the ICC court to bring you today, but I do have our first panel of the season. And because it's a panel episode, you already know this episode is chock full of content. So let's get right into it. This week in the digital studio, we hosted some of the fine folks over at the Rising Arbitrators Initiative, or RIE. RIE is an exciting new initiative which is set on creating opportunities for young and diverse arbitrators. They have already had some great events and have some familiar faces in leadership. We see you, Krina. And now some of those faces in leadership are now familiar around here as well. RIE sent over its executive committee, Anna Girdeau de Borgia Marceo, Alexandra G. Leventhal, and Rocio Dijon. And aside from at least two of them speaking much better Portuguese than me, hey, I'm working on it. All of them have served as arbitrator in at least one case. You'll hear from them what Rai is all about, as well as some interesting perspectives on developing a profile as an international arbitrator and thriving in this COVID world. So, without further ado, sit back and enjoy my conversation with the Rising Arbitrators. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Uh, with me today, I have some very special guests, not guests, not just one guest, Miss Rocio Dijon, Anna Jardal uh, de Borgia, and she's going to correct me on that in just a moment, and Alexander Leventhal. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Hi, Chris. It's great to be here. Good to be here, too. Fantastic. Yes. And because unfortunately we're still in the COVID times, we can't have this wonderful meeting uh, face to face. So we're all probably going to do our best to try to uh, to not have that uh, emblematic thing where Zoom talking over each other or talking at the same time. But um, I'm glad that all of you were able to stop by. So the reason why these three are with me today is because they are the founders, the pioneers of an exciting new initiative called the Rising Arbitrators Initiative. And before we get into that, you know, one of the things that you know, I think a lot of folks can identify with can really resonates with them. And even for myself, is that when you're starting out in arbitration, one might say, have a conversation with a professor that says, oh, well, I know about international law, international arbitration now. I want to be an arbitrator. I mean, can I hang my shingle out next week? And I mean, while you could do that, maybe um, it is quite an interesting path to get there. So this initiative um, it started up in the last year and purports to be um, a supportive organization for arbitration practitioners under the age of 45 who are either already have received their first appointment as arbitrator or have at least seven years of professional experience in the practice of international arbitration. Well, we're going to get all into that in just a moment, um, but why don't we take a step back and rewind and say, 
Welcome to the show. So, Alexander, Anna, Rocio, and perhaps we'll start with Rocio first. I'm going to ask you the questions that I ask all of my guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? So, I'm Rocio, a legal consultant for White and Case, based in Rome. Uh, I'm originally from Boston, and both of my parents are Spanish. When I finished law school, I moved to New York City, where I spent some years working as an associate at law firms. And then I spent three years leading the ICC's then newly opened New York office as managing director of counsel. Uh, I left in 2017 and moved to Europe, and I've been here ever since. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Right. So from Boston now to, well, some stops in between now and Rome. Um, how are you finding your, well, how are you finding life in Rome? I mean, is it the same as Boston? Is it different? What have you found to be uh, some of the really interesting parts about being there? The most interesting, one of the most interesting things about Rome is obviously it's a really rich cultural city, probably more than any other you live in, right? As you walk around, sort of the ruin, it's around you. Um, I think the people, obviously, there is something about being sort of Roman in Italy that I'm not, um, even though I live here. Um, and I think the food is great, as everyone probably knows. <laughs> No, that's fantastic. Yeah, and we'll have to. We're going to come back to that in just a second um, because we want to hear about these Roman foods and uh, this practice a little bit more. Um, and next, Alexander, how about yourself? So, um, where who are you from? Where are you from? What do the people? Do? Hi, I'm Alexander Leventhal. Um, I'm an of counsel uh, at Quinn Emanuel in Paris uh, in the International Arbitration Department. I am originally born and raised in New York, New York. Uh, but I've been living in Paris for the last 10 years. I originally came here uh, in, in a dual degree exchange program during law school. I was at the University of Pennsylvania Law School in Philly. Um, and I discovered international arbitration during that 3L year. Uh, and as they say, the rest is history. Well, sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess they probably don't have Philly cheesesteaks in Paris, no? No, <laughs> but that's probably one of the things I miss the least about being here, to be honest. <laughs> no, that that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Okay, and you're a Quinn Emanuel now. And um, and what type of uh, practice do you have? So um, we do a little bit of everything. Um, my practice is definitely focused on arbitrations with states. That could be an investor state arbitration, but that could also be a commercial arbitration with the state owned enterprise or some sort of state element. Um, and we do have uh, a, a, an expertise, I would say, in the energy sector, but uh, all of my arbitrations aren't necessarily energy arbitrations. Sure. Okay. And we're going to put a pin in that too. I'm going to ask you some more questions about that in just a bit, Alexander. And last, but certainly not least, Anna, um, you, so you'll have to forgive me right off the bat. Uh, please do tell us how do I pro how do we properly pronounce your name and then tell us, you know, some of the same things. What do, what do the folks need to know about you? Well, uh, well, as you know, Brazil is a country of immigrants. So uh, my, well, the way you pronounce me in Portuguese is Anna Gerdaldi Borges. That's very easy. But uh, my name, family names, uh, when the first one is German and um, and the second one is Spanish, so I can't imagine a different combination of pronunciation you will have. Um, I'm, um, uh, I work at uh, Deon de Garavi, that's a, an international arbitration boutique in Paris. 
Um, it's been a while now. I've been uh, there. I started it uh, in 2018. And before I used to work at um, uh, also a boutique, um, well, before Cleary Gottlieb in Paris and then before that in Sao Paulo, uh, uh, it was a boutique uh, specializing in arbitration and uh, related litigation that's called VALD. And um, the founder was one of the uh, Brazilian members of the International Court of Arbitration of the ICC for um, almost um, 10 years. Uh, uh, well, I studied law uh, in Brazil, so my undergrad in law was done in Brazil. And uh, the idea was to become a diplomat, but then I ended up uh, doing the business and I fell in love with arbitration. So I, I wanted to do it for, for my work and for my life. And so uh, I did practice in Brazil after um, studying in, uh, in Brazil and then an LLM and a PhD at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And, but I was missing Europe and I decided to, to move back uh, and have a, more, a greater exposure to international arbitration. So. <laughs> well, right, a little bit of a winding path of your own. And, um, you know, uh, with the Portuguese name, I find myself uh, speaking to you all today from Coimbra, Portugal. So, uh, you know, I have a little bit of practicing pr Portuguese pronunciations myself, though probably failing. <laughs> Um, well, great. Um, and let me ask you this question before we kind of uh, circle back and kind of dig deeper on uh, each of the three of you. Um, so you you practiced in Brazil for a while. Um, what was the how, how did you find that in comparison to, I guess, practicing in Europe or practicing where you cur currently practice? Uh, in terms of um, experience or in terms of types of cases, uh, well, as you know, Brazil receives a lot of foreign investment. So very often we, have, we used to uh, have uh, foreign clients uh, at the firm, but uh, because the transaction takes place, takes place in Brazil, the operation of the investment takes place in Brazil. Well, in most cases, Brazilian law applies and arbitrations are conducted in Portuguese uh, under the ICC rules or under the rules of um, domestic arbitral institutions. There are plenty of uh, arbitral institutions in Brazil, some of them very well uh, reputed. So uh, uh, that's perhaps different. Uh, it's a more domestic uh, arbitration rather than international arbitration with foreign elements. Whereas in Paris now, uh, at the Honda Garavi, it's very, very international. I mean, I mainly work in English, sometimes in French and in Spanish. And uh, it's uh, fascinating. Of my my talent, uh, well, I I. I really can uh, evolve as a human being in a more um, international environment. So I'm very happy that I decided to uh, do a bit of a change in my career in the sense that now I'm, I moved to, to Europe where you have more international, uh, really international cases. Well, sure. And um, that is all extremely fascinating. And I'm sure, again, that we'll, we'll continue to talk about that. But one thing that you said that I don't want to breeze over is that you wanted to be a diplomat first? I mean, tell us about that. I mean, what was the, the, the transition? What was the, the moment when you decided to pursue the path of the lawyer instead? Well, uh, perhaps uh, that was during my law studies. Uh, so I started with the public international law at uh, university. Well, also one of the first courses we, we had in Brazil, like had second year with public international law. So I, I remember I was very enthusiastic. But at the same point, uh, I did the mood, the third uh, death of mood in my, we, we went to the DC uh, um, 
rounds and it was really exciting. But at some point I realized that my colleagues, fellow students at, uh, in law that had this uh, passion for diplomacy, they were more like journalists. I was always like a personality that I wanted to go extremely deep in, um, in my in the very detailed uh, way of, uh, and I, I really enjoyed research. So that's the personality that would be more suited for, for this international dispute resolution. And you have very nice, the nice international aspect to it. So that's sort of a, almost uh, well as back in terms of the very international uh, aspect to, 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 to our practice in international situations. So I'm very satisfied. <laughs> Well, and that's true. Uh, but I guess also, I mean, it's not too late. I mean, there's still plenty of career left. You know, perhaps you, one day you might return to the diplomat path. Who knows? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I mean, Brazilians are very structured career. I think I'm too old. Ah, okay, okay. Um, well, one more question for you um, while, while we're on the subject. So, um, what, are, what are the types of day-to-day -day things that you find yourself doing? Any specific industries or any areas of interest in particular? Yes, um, we do, well, at the Homes Gallery, we, we do a, two, um, mainly commercial, I work with the Homes. So, uh, well, the firm has to do half-half commercial and investment arbitration. Sure. But if the Homes, he mainly does commercial cases. Uh, and some, I would say, 20% investment cases. So it's very stimulating in the sense that I can do uh, both uh, types of uh, arbitration, treaty-based and contract-based. Um, and mainly in terms of industries, I would say like general commercial transactions, joint ventures, infrastructure-related uh, uh, operations and projects uh, involving energy, like oil and gas, renewables, and including like real estate. And it's very broad uh, what we do. Uh, in, in, the, in the sense, we, we're sort of generalists, but very specialized in dispute resolution. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. Um... And so, uh, and I and I recognize that I kind of breezed past this question um, when I was talking to you first, Rocio. How about you, Rocio? What type of work do you find yourself doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and maybe what kind of interest in particular do you really have in international dispute resolution? Yeah, sure. Um, so I I do mostly. It's a, actually it's a pretty good mix of investment treaty and commercial. Um, I work mostly with the DC office of White's case, which you tend to think is sort of more investment treaty based um but right now i have a good mix of uh both i have one invest one commercial arbitration case and uh two investment treaty cases that i'm working on and as far as the industries it's really quite so um so Rocio, you were telling us about how um you do, uh, do a lot of work with the dc office uh white and case doing a uh, commercial arbitration and and uh isds um, can you tell us more about uh, about those things that you do, the types of sectors, or maybe just the personal interest that you have in those cases? There's a wide variety of sectors. I'd say I have a case now in the textile industry. Um, we have some contract, obviously, just based cases at the ICC. So it really it, it varies depending on the case itself. A huge arbitration practice, and it's actually where I started my career in arbitration uh, many years ago. Um, when I finished college, I went to a legal assistant interview at White and Case in D.C. And not knowing what I you know, when they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to use Spanish and French at work. And they said, OK, there's this thing called arbitration. And I said, great, let's do it. Um, so I did it sort of for one year there before I went to the Netherlands to do an LM. And then I came back and went to law school. And now, now that I'm in Rome, I'm back working with the same people uh, I met then. So it's exciting and I really enjoy it. 
So it was really the opportunity to sort of use the, um, the sort of language skills and the cultural background and then just a little bit of personal interest that kind of took you to international arbitration. Is that right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, except that I thought I have these language skills. I like sort of international things. Right at the age of 22, I don't think there's much more you can count on. And that's sort of how I find my way to white case in the first place and started working on arbitration. Right, the first case I worked on as a paralegal was the Fraport v. Philippines case. We were representing uh, the Philippines, so it was a good introduction. I would say it's an investment treaty arbitration. Well, certainly so. I mean, that's um, a great introduction and some really like relevant work. You know, sometimes as a lawyer, you might find yourself not doing the most interesting or, or tangible sort of effect, effectual work. And that's uh, certainly not the case there. Um, so so any in the last question I would ask you, Rocio, before we move on from that point is um, any specific sectors or anything, uh, any particular practice areas that you really like within the broader field of uh, investor state or commercial arbitration? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I have a pretty diverse practice from sort of textiles, energy. I don't have a particular one I like. Right? What I really like is sort of thinking about the legal issues that come up in each one, right? How issues of attribution or parallel proceedings could sort of play out in each of these different situations, which isn't necessarily industry-based. Sure. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And, um, and as promised, we're coming back to uh, Alexander now. And Alexander's going to tell us, I mean... You know, so we've heard some of your origin stories, some some of your past of how you've gone from Philly to now being in Paris. But the thing that I want to know is similar to what I've just asked these two ladies here is what was that moment? What was the, that Batman origin story sort of moment of when you decided you were going to pursue uh, the right of international arbitration? Well, I think my um, the reason I was initially attracted to international arbitration without knowing anything about it um, was the same. I, I was. Um, you know, I come from a, a, a very American background. My parents don't speak other languages, um, uh, and I wanted to be able to, to, to do that in my daily work. I had taken French um, in, in high school, uh, and before that, I took Arabic in college, uh, and I also took Portuguese in college. Um, so, in, languages were something I was really was something I was really interested in. Um, beyond that, I found uh, I was drawn to dispute resolution, even though uh, I'm not um, the type of sort of American litigator that a lot of people uh, imagine. It's sort of uh, it sort of meshed with um, my personality in certain ways, um, and also um, I really enjoy contract law and conflict of laws and international law, which are three pillars, I think, of, of both commercial and international and investor state arbitration. Um, so when I discovered uh, that there was a field where I could put all of those things together, um, you know, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try to get into that field no matter what it takes. Well, sure. And by the way, I heard that little uh, that's that little slide in there saying Americans don't speak other languages. All right. You got at least two or three examples on this call of that being the opposite case. <laughs> no, absolutely. And and the, 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 I think the point that I meant was in, you know, in the growing up in the U.S., you have people that come that have, um, you know, some sort of connection to outside of the U.S. and in, in their family, a direct connection, I say, because we all have some sort of connection to elsewhere in the world, um, indirectly, at least. 
um, but you, you grow up seeing people speak a different language at home, uh, and then there are those of us that go home and speak English with our parents uh, and our grandparents, and that's always a, you know, a big disadvantage, I think, generally speaking. I, I, I found it to be um, you know, something I wanted, uh, you know, I regretted. <laughs> Well, sure. I mean, um, one last question on that point. Um, how frequently do you speak uh, other languages in your day-to-day work? I mean, I imagine pretty frequently, no? Uh, it really depends on the cases. Um, I generally work mostly in English. Uh, I do work with clients in English, uh, in, in French and Arabic and, and in Portuguese from time to time. Um, but most of my work really is in English. All right. Well, you send me a note when you're going to start picking up Mandarin, and we'll uh, we'll we'll have a, a little sit down session. <laughs> um, but um, I, I appreciate that sort of interlude uh, on each of you. Um, it's really fascinating uh, sort of backgrounds that each of you have, and I look forward to kind of digging a little bit more when, and later in our chat. Um, what I do want to talk about <clears throat> is this: what we talked about at the top of the show, the Rising Arbitrators Initiative. Um, I gave a sort of two-sentence explanation that one can find right on the website. We do have a brief promo explanation for RIE as to what the group's goals and ambitions are. Take a listen. RIE seeks to support arbitration practitioners under 45 who either have already received their first appointment as arbitrator or have at least seven years of professional experience in the practice of international arbitration by creating a support network and encouraging best practices. Structurally, we have an advisory council led by Carolyn Lamb and Yves de Reims, and an executive committee led by the three of us. In total, we number 23 people. You may be wondering how we actually do this, how we support arbitration practitioners. And we try to do this in a few different ways. I'll mention four. First, events. We have events open to anyone who registers and that cover issues relevant to rising arbitrators. We also have members-only events. We had our first one in January after we admitted our first round of members, which was a conversation with the incoming president of the ICC court, Claudia Solomon. We are in the process of developing additional members-only content, which we hope to announce in the coming months, including related to the development of a members-only support network. The second way we try to help people, rising arbitrators, is by an institutional liaison task force. It's led by Qian Bao and Yusuf Al-Saman, and its mission is to liaise with arbitral institutions, both international and regional. And I will tell you more about this later. Thirdly, we have a support network. We're creating a network to support rising arbitrators in relation to the practicalities of acting as an arbitrator, led by Kabir Dugal and Sarah Kolelat Aranju. Camilla Gambarini has recently come on board to help us develop a monthly series, which we hope to launch in April. Lastly, we have publications. Bride's publication team, led by Krina Baltog and Montserrat Mantano, is creating content relevant to rising arbitrators. They have recently led the publication of substantive pieces on our webinar series on Clure Arbitration Blog, and are also leading an effort to create Rye content itself that will be published on the website. Wasn't that a great promo? Now let's rejoin the conversation and see what the others have to add. We start back with Alexander. Well, first of all, I'd love to to take the credit for what I think is a really excellent idea, but um, credit has to go to Rocio. 
who, uh, as far as I'm aware, came up with the idea, um, or at least is the the initiator uh, of, of the group, uh, as far as the three of us are concerned. So why, why Rye? There are plenty of other uh, young arbitration practitioners groups around, but as far as I know, we're the only group that's out there um, supporting the next rising generation of arbitration, uh, of arbitrators. And that is obviously incredibly important. I think that there are tons of great initiatives going on about changing the face of who arbitrators are, about how um, one goes about choosing arbitrators, making the pool more diverse, um, uh, better um, educated in, in sort of uh, arbitration cost practice and, and, and specific uh, relevant laws. Uh, and I think that that, re that initiative succeeds or fails with the rising generation of arbitrators. And we have, um, and so I think that uh, for me, Rye means a lot more um, than just another uh, rising or young uh, arbitration group. It's about uh, making sure that the future of international arbitration is in secure hands. Sure. And, you know, I know that, uh, that, that Rocio mentioned it just a moment ago, some of the things that you've already done. Um, can one of you perhaps offer some thoughts about what Rye has done so far? Perhaps you, Anna. Of course. Uh, well, to give you a taste of what we've been left to, um, well, since um, it launched in October 2020, um, Rye has published uh, the interviews conducted uh, by the, international, uh, the Institutional Liaison Task Force with leaders of arbitral institutions. And among the first interviewers um, feature Alexander Pesas of the ICC, Annette Magnusson of the STC, Martin Apolodek of ICSID, Martin Doe of, of the PCA, Paula Hodges of the LCAA, uh, and Nicholas Piskovitz of VIAC. Uh, well, just to give you a few examples. And perhaps one of the findings across these interviews uh, and institutions are the efforts toward ensuring greater diversity in arbitrator appointments. Data from ICSID, for instance, shows uh, that the group of first-time appointees is already more diverse. This is all very good news, we find. Uh, also, uh, we launched um, in December uh, last year, uh, December 2020, the webinar series uh, on navigating the promise and perils of your first arbitrator appointment, uh, which aims at promoting a virtual continent tour to help rising arbitrators. Uh, our, so our first event uh, took place in December last year, and then uh, that was in the United States. And then we had one in, in Austria in January. And still, we, we have uh, in March uh, another webinar in South America, followed by uh, a webinar in Africa in April. Uh, these webinars uh, seek to tackle thorny situations faced by younger arbitrators, often appointed as sole arbitrators, in expedited proceedings, and sometimes with defaulting parties, so which makes the whole exercise more difficult. So I want, we wanted to, to discuss this 
uh, so many issues and uh, situations that uh, in which I put uh, first time appointees or in the, uh, as arbitrators. So uh, I think it's been a success and we still uh, have a few uh, um, webinars coming up. So, so Anna, it sounds like you guys have been busy. Um, what has been the sort of community reception been like so far with the participants, the folks you've engaged with, with the community as a whole? Well, I would first mention the reaction of the um, founding members. Well, we are the co-founders, the three of us, but um, we, when we invited the current members of our advisory council, and the current members of our executive committee, their reaction was very positive to the project. Uh, that was very uh, nice uh, to see. Uh, also, um, you can see this uh, in terms of numbers. Since our launch in October 2020, we received 120 membership applications by December uh, last year, with 112 arbitration petitioners admitted as members. And that was the first admission season. And now the second admission season in 2021, we've already received additional 170 membership applications, which is very nice. Um, in parallel, uh, we also been uh, collaborating with, uh, for instance, the Clover arbitration blog, uh, thanks to uh, our executive committee member, Karina Bautag. And uh, so uh, the reports of our events that uh, discuss very uh, useful perhaps questions for rising activities. They are published. Uh, we we make an effort to publish um, uh, this uh, information that could be later used by uh, our members and uh, the public in general. Oh. oh, that's very cool. Um, it sounds like I mean, especially having something like Cluer on your side is a great asset. And it sounds like you know to go up you know more than double from your first session to the second session. That's uh, that's amazing results. Um, well. Not quite double, but in, in any case, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, to have 170 applicants in season two, that's that, that that's pretty great. Um, or session two, we'll say. Um, it's kind of just a, a pragmatic question. I mean, how how did it come to be that the that Rye got off the ground? I mean, did the three of you know each other previously? Was there like you know some sort of signal in the sky that told you to start this? I mean, what what what's the story there? And this is for this is for anybody. So I'd speak under the control of Alex and Anna here, but. I believe that the sort of the genesis of us meeting was I used to be the young ITA regional chair for Europe uh, when I was in Paris it was three years ago. And in that context, I met Alex, who was um, with the CR sort of YMG group and also Anna. And we organized an event together, uh, sort of an annual review in December by both organizations. And then we did it again the next year. And then when this idea for Rise sort of came to mind, uh, I sort of thought naturally as they would be the two people I want to develop with, with and sort of take it forward. Well, very cool. And that kind of, um, you know, that answer and then the answer that Anna just gave kind of dovetail nicely together. Um, as it goes to Rye, how does someone get involved? I mean, is it just you just go on the website or what's that process like? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Uh, you go to the website, you confirm that you're under 45, have seven years of experience or have had one case as arbitrator. And then you answer just three questions about your interest in Rye, right? Where it comes from, why, how you want to contribute to the organization. Uh, you can apply all year. We only review applications in September and March, and then we'll have a sort of members only welcome event at that time. Uh, the executive committee member in charge of membership is Flavia Manji. So if anyone has questions, 
they can obviously contact her. And just as sort of an aside, we have a membership application, not to exclude potential members, but really to ensure that people who want to join are committed to being involved in the organization and its development. I think it's really important, given that we're so new. No, I think that I think that's exactly uh, spot on. That you know, the the starting uh, beginnings of any organization is where you need the most energy and inertia. But um, but I also heard that that note. I mean, under forty five, y'all are out here checking driver's licenses and passports, or <laughs> or is it kind of just the honor code? It's the honor code. Uh, hopefully, if you write your year of birth, you're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> Do any ulterior checks? <laughs> I was gonna say we only accept long form birth certificates. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Alexander, um, you, you might be able to answer this a little bit. What is the overall goal or dream for Rye? I mean, what when will you guys kind of know that this has been a success or you've gotten to where you're going? I mean, I, I don't think that uh, a day exists when, when you know, Rye suddenly becomes unnecessary or, or obsolete. I think our goal is to um, foster the next generation of arbitrators, um, particularly folks who are, um, you know, sort of at that stage where they're getting uh, their first arbitral appointments and figuring out uh, how to deal with the more thorny issues that one deals with when one gets um, sort of into the arbitrator seat for the first time. Um, that's it. you know that's the that's the goal. I think you know we want to to ensure that um, you know the next generation has a support network uh, around it and uh, you know a, a way of uh, of learning how to how to deal with those issues, or, or you know, having someone to go to to resolve um, you know the types of difficult issues that you may encounter when you're uh, you're getting your first appointment. Uh, I think that the way that we've um, we imagine going about that has changed drastically um, since we first started talking about this, which was last spring. When we thought that you know by by June life would be back June 2020 I should say life would be back to normal and um, that shows uh, how how good we are at predicting the future but um, <laughs> fortunately we're not in that business um, but I think that you know initially we had we had imagined that we would be a lot of in-person type events and and creating in-person contacts and I think that you know we've been We've been obviously forced to adapt to the new environment and do lots of online events, um, but I think that that has shown. I have at least learned, um, sort of, that you don't need to be in a in a based in a in an arbitration center to to be able to have access to the types of resources that we're trying to provide to people. Uh, and I take my hat off in particular to to you and Tales of the Tribunal uh, and, and other um, fora that use new media to create, discuss, to foster discussions about international arbitration that, you know, would have taken place in um, scholarly journals and that, you know, pricey 
arbitration conferences that not everyone has access to. Well, listeners, I will tell you, I did not slip Alexander like 50 euros for that answer. Um, <laughs> um, no, um, th th that's well appreciated. And uh, my, my, along with my show, I mean, there are tons of new initiatives um, that have popped up here um, kind of in response to COVID to, to do exactly what you've just described, Alexander, to, to be a response to um, the lack of the ability to meet in person to talk in a more candid way about the international arbitration dispute resolution community. So it's it's exciting to see that a, a group like Rye has uh, popped up. Um, kind of just two more questions, I guess, as we as we wrap up uh, discussing discussing Rye in particular. For this one, maybe for Rocio, uh, what's next? I mean, you know, you've got off to this great start. You've got some heavy hitters in your camp. I mean, you know, shoot, you got Tales of the Tribunal as a partnering organization. I mean, shoot, you guys are going to the moon. Um, I'm joking, of course. Um, but what's next for uh, for Rye? Sure, we've already mentioned a few of our upcoming projects, but I'd say in the sort of near pipeline, we have, we'll have a new members event for the March cohort. Uh, we'll implement the support network, which I think is a really important part of our organization. And we're about to launch uh, an arbitrator quotation project sort of reaching out to leading arbitrators for sort of short tips on or on their experience as an arbitrator to share with uh, the public. And we also are very much looking forward to return to in-person events. But as Alex said, we're not very good at predicting the future, so we don't know when that will be. Sure. No, we understand. Um, but we will look forward to your invitation, Rocio, to join you at a villa either in Rome or in Tuscany, perhaps. Perhaps we'll get a you know, some of the folks down there to help extend some hospitality. <laughs> or are you in Florence? No. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we'll grab that uh, that Mike McElrath guy and, uh, and wrangle uh, an event up. That'd be great. <laughs> um, so one final question about Rye. Um, one of the important conversations that has gone on over the past year has been the need for, or not just the past year, but for the past few years in an increasing amount, has been the need for greater ethnic diversity but also um, gender diversity. Um, there's been a large push for that. A lot of organizations are working on that. Um, how does this demand for more ethnic and cultural diversity, as well as gender diversity, factor into RISE sort of um, goals that we've talked about today? And that's for anyone who wants to take that one. I'm happy to, to take that question. Uh, I think that the next generation of arbitrators is going to be a much more diverse cohort than previous generations, whether you like it or not. And you can either, um, you know, embrace the future or, or try to stick to the past. Uh, and I think that what we, you know, obviously one of our goals is is, is certain, you know, one of our guiding principles is certainly diversity. We're not uh, an organization um, like Rio or the pledge that uh, is centered around that, but that certainly fits within our greater objective of fostering the next generation of arbitration practitioners and making people feel comfortable to ask questions, to seek out resources where those people on the basis of their race, gender, ethnicity, religion, what have you, may have not been as comfortable to, to reach out to someone in the past to say, hey, you know, I have this issue about in a case that I'm dealing with, how do I deal with that? Or um, 
you know, uh, to, to, to find someone that can, can help them uh, understand, you know, how, how one goes about um, dealing with difficult issues in the first appointment. Sure. No. And thanks for that. And um, I think that I think that it's one of those things, right? I don't know that there's any one right way to go about it, but it's a conversation that's going to continue to come up and organizations have to have at least thought about it and have a plan for addressing it. I mean, it's not no longer sufficient to kind of just say it'll take care of itself. So, um, Alexander, we're going to stick right with you as we um, as we head uh, along from the next sort of set of conversation points. Um, and this is what I like to call the speed round, just kind of personal interest points for, for my guests. What was the last book, movie, or piece of music you last enjoyed? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, the last uh, movie I saw was uh, Coming to America 2. Oh, yeah. Coming to America with a 2, <laughs> rather than the, words, uh, the word 2. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the original movie. Uh, it was, you know, even though it didn't come close to living up to the original, I really enjoyed it because I love the characters and I love, I love the new and old characters. You know, you're ahead of me. I haven't even, I haven't seen that either. Um, I haven't, well, I haven't seen it yet myself is what I mean. Uh, the original is such a classic, you know, from McDowell's to, um, Eddie Murphy and all the, the celebrities is just great. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, you know, leaving that there for just a second um, and, and turning to, to Rocio, um, again, one of the things that we've kind of dealt with over the past year has been, you know, this sort of ad- adaptation to working from home. Um, you know, some you can do so much with music and movies and books and those types of things, but how have you found working from home? Um, what are you looking forward to when the lockdown ends? So I have to confess, this is not my first time working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you may realize, there is no white encased Rome office. So I was already working from home or from a co-working space uh, even prior to the pandemic. But there has been sort of a difference that I've noticed, which is that with everyone else in the office, across the white encased offices, also suddenly finding themselves alone at home in front of a computer, there's been a lot more uh, communication right, in terms of not people sort of getting together in an office. Suddenly we have to jump on Zoom or on a call to have these conversations. So from my perspective, um, it's been positive in that regard. It's been positive. And and how about, well, so, you know, so this is not your first uh, working from home experience, but how about when working from home ends? I mean, what do you look forward to, to doing most, uh, I guess, after uh, we turn to normal times? Uh, Travel. Uh, I very much want to go to Boston to see my family, yeah. uh, where I haven't been since pre-pandemic, and right otherwise seeing friends around the world. Uh, right now, it seems that, I don't know, uh, right, Firenze is as close as Tokyo in terms of our ability to travel there. No, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, it was a little bit surreal as I was bringing in the new year this year to realize I hadn't been in the United States since Thanksgiving of 2019. I mean, that's you know, um, it's been some time. To, I'd love yeah, to get back to it. I was yeah. there two weeks before, I think the week before Thanksgiving of 2019. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I mean, it's it would be great to get back to back to the States or just travel in general. I mean, I think we all probably have lists of of, of weddings and other family events that we'd like to be able to uh, to get back to. Um, you know, and this kind of touches on that, that this previous question, and then this one's for Anna. Um, what are some of the ways that you maintain 
your physical and your mental health during this time? I mean, you know, to some extent, I think we all have probably experienced to some extent, maybe not Rocio because she's done this before, but for the other, those of us that, that this is the first experience, um, balancing your physical and mental health. I mean, your days sort of just can seem endless um, and that you, you know, boundaries sort of all get muddled. How, how do you balance that and how do you um, maintain your sense of self in this time? That's a difficult question to answer, but um, uh, well, what I try to do, I'm not perfect, so uh, sometimes I have days that I feel that I need my girlfriend, but I can't see them so easily. Um, uh, but uh, what I try to do, and that uh, perhaps portrays how uh, our society is um, persevering, uh, in the sense that even like for my, I practice ballet, it's uh, been uh, many years, and and it's a sport I started older. I started at the age of 20, so it's not very common. Normally people start at the age of seven, eight, maybe. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I actually discovered that there are online ballet classes and videos available on YouTube, so I can do like, uh, uh, this is like almost like meditating for me because one has to concentrate so much. So I, I really forget about work and, it's very nice. Also, I love music and I, I try to listen to jazz. I'm a big fan of jazz and Brazilian jazz, like Bossa Nova. Mm. And perhaps another way to keep uh, balance is to spend uh, family time, nice family time, um, if possible. Of course, with some now we have restrictions, but uh, at some sometimes it's possible to spend with time with certain family members and that's already nice and, and calling one uh, one or two friends uh, every other day it's also uh, uh, can uh, make you feel better <laughs> yeah sure no um frankly for me i look forward to going back to the gym you know i've never been a treadmill kind of person so like working out inside has been uh not the most productive you can only run around your neighborhood block so many times before you're just like i just want to go to the gym <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but no, I think that, I think that's interesting. And I think that, yeah, those types of things we can sort of model, um, life beforehand where you talk with friends, where you uh, just try and be, um, try and be engaged with the outside world as much as you can. I think that's exactly right. And, uh, um, well, you know, as we kind of head towards the end of our time together, um, I, I, I know that one of the things that a lot of our listeners really enjoy is sort of perspectives and thoughts and advice from our guest. And um, and I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back to you, Alexander, and ask you a bit about you know this. My one of my favorite hypotheticals is: let's say you get approached. Let's just say this is a um, an imaginary situation. You get approached by a student or a person that's looking to shift into the field of international dispute resolution. What advice would you give them? How would you try and uh, guide their path? Sure. Um, well, the first thing that I always tell. Uh, people that are interested in, in getting more involved in international arbitration is you have to be passionate about it. I think that the only way you're successful in anything is if you feel really strongly about it and you love doing it. Um, in terms of sort of more concrete, less theoretical advice, I always tell um, interns in our office or young associates that they should make themselves indispensable. Um, and that, you know, includes going the extra mile to learn about parts of the case that you might not have direct responsibility over, um, you know, 
mastering uh, logistics issues that um, uh, that you you may not feel incredibly passionate about passionate about directly, but you should think that you know it's incredibly important in the general scheme of things. Uh, and finally, in terms of your place in the arbitration community, I think that you should make yourself unique. Um, and I think that's what that's what's so special about our field is that it really prizes uniqueness in a way that, uh, you know, extra legal skills that you have in, in, uh, in international arbitration will be uh, an added value, whereas in, perhaps in another field of the law, it's, you know, it's a, it's interesting, but it's not really relevant. So I, I, I would, I would suggest that, um, you know, people that are looking to get more involved in international arbitration, think about how they can make their profile, uh, uh, stand out from the group. Well, sure. And I think that, you know, quite frankly, certainly starting a new organization like the three of you have done is one way to do that. But I imagine that's something you'll cultivate is, you know, showing folks what's the strategic or added value that, that your profile has. I mean, everything, everyone has something. I imagine that's part of the thought process. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've done, uh, uh, for now is, is put, um, uh, you know, very brief profiles of, of members on our, uh, on our website. And the idea is, uh, to, um, to put the information out there about young practitioners, everyone has, you know, uh, certain uh, aspects of their professional uh, experience, uh, language skills, um, you know, maybe technical knowledge uh, that would make them a great arbitrator in a in a specific case. And you know, not everybody knows that. No, that's a point well taken. Well taken indeed. Um... We're going to stay in the realm of the theoretical um, as we head towards the end here. And this question is for you, Rocio. I'd like you to take out your, your crystal ball, so to speak, and, and peer into the future. And what developments or sort of innovations or things do you see coming down the road for a post-COVID-19 world for the world of international dispute resolution? I think we could think about potentially four predictions or trends. Um, I think now that it's been or will be this week, basically a, a year we've been living with COVID, I think its impact will actually resound going forward. So I think, first of all, I think we'll see clients insisting on more virtual meetings, even once it's over, just as a way to cut counsel fees, right? We've all become more technologically savvy. Clients will want to capitulate on this, I think, as a way to reduce their fees. Right? It seems it seems almost boring or strange to think that we would have case management conferences in person sometimes. Um, but I don't think that an in-person hearing will be wiped out, right? I think cross-examination needs to be in person no matter how great the technology is. Um, I think a second sort of trend or prediction is that, as we've already started seeing, right, institutional rules and software instruments will continue to include provisions on virtual hearings and communications um, and I think this means that it's memorializing that in some way, right? It's not that COVID ends and those provisions come out, 
they stay there, which means that parties, I think, will continue to keep utilizing them in the future, maybe less than they are now, but they'll still be part of sort of what practicing international arbitration is. Um, I think thirdly, it may be less interesting, but I think it could also affect document production, right? I think there will be much less of let's go to the site and sift through sort of boxes of documents and see what we find. It's already more digitalized even now just because of technology, but I think it will continue to be so. And then lastly, um, I think there's been talk about whether it's positive or negative, but I think there will be more sort of claims as a result of the impact of COVID-19. And I think there we'll see a rise in the invocation of certain contract provisions, right? You can think of force measure, price revision, frustration of contracts. Uh, so I guess if I had to think of those, those would be the four things would really stick out to me if I had to make predictions now, but it's, it's pretty close to where we are. Um, I think COVID will be with us into the future, at least its effects. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, like all good uh, prediction segments, we're going to have to note these down and then we'll come back in 10 years and say, ah, Rocio, what are you talking about? Everyone went right back to the same as before. <laughs> uh, no, no, but I think you're right. I think you're right. Almost the final question, and this one goes to you, Anna. What were some of the guiding forces or mentors that had an impact on your career? Um, and can you reflect on, on, on that experience a bit? Oh, yes, I had, I think I was, um, I was quite lucky. Uh, before I moved back to Brazil, uh, when I was finishing my, on my la well, finishing my last year of PhD studies, I didn't know anyone in Sao Paulo, uh, as I come from the south. I, I come from the extreme south of Brazil, close to Uruguay. I come from Porto Alegre. And I remember to have contacted various uh, lawyers uh, specializing in arbitration in Sao Paulo and Rio. And the first person giving me the opportunity to work, since I studied for so long, and then people wouldn't have find that I had a profile um, in a way, as I started working, well, I did internship, uh, but I started working at the age of 27, so it's a bit late after finishing my PhD. Uh, and this was the uh, um, uh, then president of the Brazilian Arbitration Committee, that Eduardo Damian Gonçalves. So he was the one, the person trusting me. And so I'm very thankful to him. Also, after, after him, I had the great uh, opportunity to work with the legend of Brazilian uh, arbitration that Eduardo uh, Arnoldo Val. Uh, he is like uh, he was an amazing lawyer. He had uh, knowledge, deep knowledge of various uh, areas of law across uh, the board. So he was extremely creative as a lawyer, as a, as counsel, and had a very elegant and concise legal drafting that also perhaps is a, 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 a in a way I would call it a bit of an English way of draft, drafting, uh, but it's a Brazilian. <laughs> Uh, lawyer, uh, so it's very rare. We in civil law, we have long sentences and we are not very concise often. But he was like a very exceptional Brazilian in the sense that he was extremely concise. And it's an art. Uh, so he was also uh, uh, inspiring me because he was listening to younger lawyers. He always asked the opinion of interns or and junior lawyers, and I was sometimes surprised, but he was always very open uh, uh, spirit. And now I, I have the chance to work with the amazing uh, a lawyer that's Yves de Hans, and I'm so grateful and in a way he's a role model. I, I just wanted to be just a, a, a tiny little percentage of what he is and I would be so happy because it's an amazing human, human being 
So far, it doesn't work for him. And in terms of management, it's so smart because I don't think he even realizes because one wants to do more for him because it's so pleasant to work for him that one does more without even noticing. It's a pleasure. And he is uh, um, so humble and extremely knowledgeable, reasonable, and very independent thinking that he has. So it's a, it's a privilege. <laughs> so I'm so lucky with the. I'm, I'm hoping to learn as much as possible from all these uh, I have learned as much as possible from the previous segment. <laughs> sure, no, those are great. Um, and it's, uh, I'm always curious to hear, um, you know, not just the mentors, but the guiding forces or principles. That's really cool. Um, and it sounds like you've definitely had some, some good signposts along the way. Well, um, unfortunately, you know, our time together um, with the, the founders and pioneers of the Rising Arbitrator Initiative is, is coming to a close. And before we get out of here, do any of you have any shout outs, any hi moms or hey to colleagues, family, friend, anything like that that you'd like to give? All right. Well, hearing none, um, I want to thank uh, Alexander, Anna and Rocio for stopping by again today. Um, it was really great having you in the digital studio. And there's never enough time to have the, the fulsome conversations that we would like to have. Um, any final thoughts or any concluding remarks before uh, we wrap up? Just uh, a few quick words to say thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak with us today uh, and allow us to talk a little bit about something we're very passionate about. Th a big thank you also to all of your listeners. Uh, and we would also encourage you to please check us out. Our website is writing risingarbitratorsinitiative.com. Fantastic. And um, as we said in the intro sort of bit of this episode, um, I'm a member of the Rising Arbitrator Initiative as well. I think it's a great organization and I look forward to participating actively and supporting the org as we go forward. So with that, um, let us sign off and we will see you next week. And I am Alexander Leventhal. And there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank y'all so much, and we will see you next time. Come and knock on our door. We'll be waiting for you. Hey, that's a Three's Company joke. Three's Company, anyone? No, because there were three people on the panel. Okay, never mind. No, no. Okay, that was a great conversation with Rye. It has been my pleasure to one, personally be involved with the organization, and two, to talk with them about the group's goals and direction. They are definitely TOT approved. And they were not even our only panel episode for this season. We have at least two more this season. Who will it be? You'll have to follow us on Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to find out. On that note, please, please, please leave us a review and share with a friend or colleague. It is the single biggest way that we get out in front of new listeners. And I would deeply appreciate it if you do. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. And show interns are Matthew Cothran and Ramatulahi Jallo. That's it for this week. Don't forget to tune into Disputes Digest tomorrow. And until next week, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. 
No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.